Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? I'm good. I'm getting into the swing of things, having a routine at home and Mm -hmm. uh, working from the kitchen table, which is quite a weird phenomenon for me because I'm not someone that actually spends much time in my kitchen ever. And today's guest, we are having a very early talk art meeting and I'm super excited because I have wanted to talk to her for a long time because I feel like she's someone that really unites people and brings people together from, from different backgrounds and different industries in the kind of goal of helping promote creativity and art and has had an amazing career and is now the leader of the greatest museum in the UK in my opinion if not the world but only probably because I'm a Londoner but also because I love St Ives and the Tate galleries are just transformative um, and also an international kind of destination now for people all over the world so I'm very excited. I heard her give a speech at Tate's and Ives um, when Rebecca Warren opened the new galleries there um, a year or so ago. And I was blown away by just the words she chose to use. And I felt like she really, you know, made everyone in the room feel welcome and, and, and part of this kind of major moment for Tate's and Ives. And I'm really excited to speak to her. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Maria, Maria Bowshaw. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I think that's the nicest introduction I have probably ever had. Really? Oh, well, it's just, it's deserved. Yeah, totally absolutely. deserved. How does oh. this find you, Maria? How how are you at the moment? Um, I am managing in isolation quite well, and uh, I'm in Kent, and mm-hmm. I have a garden outside me, which is uh, feels like a real luxury at the moment. Um, yeah. And I'm running. The four tates from my kitchen counter. I mean, that oh is God. a new experience. Yeah, but it wow. <laughs> but it turns out it's possible. And um, colleagues across the four tates, there's nearly fourteen hundred of them. They have been amazing, turning from being open to being closed and working at home and moving online, and still sharing all the art we have with our public with incredible speed in this context of real uncertainty so I kind of I am on a daily basis struck with awe about the wonderful colleagues I have. Amazing well we're just going to say about the four Tates we've got the Tate Britain and the Tate Modern that are in London then we have Tate St Ives in Cornwall and we have Tate Liverpool. Liverpool so they're yeah. the four yeah. Tates that are all around the country so mm. are you finding a, a massive rush of um, audiences going online now to the Tate because you've got quite an amazing setup and the content that the Tate offers the public right yeah yeah um there's been a a huge spike in um numbers on the website and most especially for children so I mean quietly quietly and every day Tate does loads with school-aged children and with families we had this lovely part of our website called Tate Kids now We've seen a five thousand percent increase in five thousand percent. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. And the first weekend when we were all told to stay at home, um, there's a bit of the uh, the Take Kids site that is a gallery for children, 
and they can use the, um, a paint tool to make works of art themselves. And over two days, 1,500 artworks were uploaded to the site. And I mean, they're beautiful. They've, I've been looking at them every day. Oh, so there's like an online gallery of the work. Yeah, yeah. And you can see Tate's kind of local importance, but also its international reach because there's kids in Singapore, all across the US. We had, <laughs> we had a, a huge spike in interest in Turkey because people were locked down there, but they were looking for creative things to do. No and way. although it's incredibly um, sort of gratifying, it doesn't surprise me because oh. we're in these strange times. And mm. I think what art helps us do is, is wrestle with uncertainty. And, and probably the nicest um, consequence of having more time at home is that we remember that we need to play a bit and to kind of imagine a better world. So you'll see on the on the tape, the kids gallery loads and loads of paintings of, of rainbows. They're and all really hopeful, right, right, right? Yeah, they really are. When it isn't that kind of oh my god, we're going into an apocalypse. Mm. It is. I'm going to remember that I'm an, a, a creative individual, and I can make things, and I can imagine the world being different. Yeah. And actually, you, in the 1990s, did a lot of education work, um, which might surprise some people, because I, I, I actually didn't know that about you. But you were a lecturer in cultural studies and, and also taught at University of Birmingham, as well as doing research yourself. Um, so do yeah. you think that kind of early part of your kind of um, career has helped to inform how you then approach running museums like the Whitworth and the Tate? Most definitely. And although that it's still quite unusual uh, to have somebody running an institution like Tate that didn't sort of train for that for their whole life. Yeah. Um, but so much of the purpose of museums these days is about um, educating in the kind of kindest sense, mm-hmm. you know, right. opening our minds to the different ways that artists look at the world and giving us the tools, I think, to imagine the world differently. And, I think I was very lucky. I, I was thinking about this last night. Um, when I went to university, I, I went to Liverpool. So Tate Liverpool was the first Tate that I knew. Um, mm. And in fact, then I definitely considered it my own gallery mm. because oh. it opened in 1988, um, just a couple of months before I arrived in the city as a student. Mm. And I'd grown up in Northampton and there, there were no galleries there. There was a there was an old museum, but there were no contemporary galleries. So I'd kind of I'd gone to Birmingham and I'd gone to London to try and find art. Mm. So I arrive in Liverpool and this amazing gallery is walking distance from my university. So that's where I first learned to look at art. And I, I'd signed up for a quite conventional English literature and language uh, degree. Mm-hmm. And I really liked what you said earlier, Robert, about words, because I love words. And I think that's right. part of my early training in literature. Um, so it's important to me that we use rich and beautiful language. Um, yeah. But the degree that I did was so quite conventional. And I hadn't gone to university to be conventional. Um, so in my first year, I discovered that there was this other, other program that was called... Um, cultural and communication studies. So I swapped out of doing English language into that with my English oh. literature bit, yeah. which was very good for me because I really hated English language. And I have to say my grammar is still less than perfect because I didn't mm-hmm. stick with that side of my degree. Mm-hmm. But the cultural studies bit um, sort of immersed me in every kind of um, creativity. So we were, we were taught anthropology, we were taught uh, psychoanalysis. We were encouraged to look at films and music. I remember writing one of my final year essays on the Pet Shop Boys um, oh, wow. and the, the collaboration that they'd made um, in videos with Derek Jarman. And yes. I, got a first, I got a first for that essay, which I did not get for my not very good essay on pre-Raphaelite poetry. Um, <laughs> so kind of embracing wider popular and visual culture really suited me. 
Um, We've just got and, to say the congratulations for the Derek Jarman, like the Save Prospect Cottage in Dungeness that literally yeah, got announced so the last brilliant. couple of days that yeah. the 3.5 million that was needed to be raised to protect it for the nation going forward as a centre of activity for culture mm. and you, yeah. your involvement in that was massive. It's just been a huge success, which is like a ray of light in the current climate. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm so pleased. And I mean, really, the credit sits with Stephen Ducher at the Art Fund, who has led a most amazing campaign. Yes. And what Tate will do is um, is hold the materials that are so fragile that they need to be in our archive at Tate Britain. Mm-hmm. But also, it was a personal campaign for me because so I, I watched Jarman's films when I was a teenager mm-hmm. on Channel 4. And um, rather like Olivia Lang, uh, the critic and, and writer writes beautifully about Derek's work mm-hmm. and and she she's the same age as me and I think both of us were 13 and were sneaking down after our parents had gone to bed to watch the films <laughs> um, wow. and and what those films gave then in the middle of the 1980s was the sense that life could be different from the kind of not very nice life we were experiencing as teenagers Mm-hmm. You know, my parents were lovely, but it was the middle of the Thatcher era and it was it didn't feel very welcoming to to kind of to creative young people. Mm-hmm. So Derek's been a lifelong inspiration for me. And and I'm a gardener and I love Dungeness. I mean, a bleak, shingly beach that goes on forever, that is my idea of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Did you ever meet comes, him? Did you ever meet Derek Jarman? I, I saw him speak. I was much too, I was a bit too young and um, and much too scared to go and speak to him in wow. those days. So he was kind of an idol who I um, admired from afar. Um, I'd have loved, and, and I now know lots of people who did know him really, really well, and I wish I had met him. Wow. Um, but sort of he was part of what made what was why I think I was lucky at university because what I was able to study in the end was the beginnings of the world changing fundamentally. So I wasn't taught that art only lives in a frame or in a piece of sculpture. Mm-hmm. I was taught about understanding the whole visual world and and I was taught queer theory and feminism and psychoanalysis and weird French theory and all of that kind of set in me both a questioning of the accepted canons so I never I sort of from that point onwards I never thought it was okay that you know the definition of an artist was a male artist I was always looking for those women artists those queer artists who were always there but you know weren't part of the mainstream then and I feel very lucky to have grown up through and spent you know a decade teaching strange things like a Wednesday morning lecture on Blur's um, park life as a way of thinking about Britishness and identity. (laughs) And I love that I have that as part of my background Mm -hmm. because that's about uh, a deeply democratic connection to artistic production. And so I've always been interested in what used to be called high culture and popular culture. and, Mm -hmm. And that's just all very relevant for Tate now and for what we think art should count, what we now know it can be. Mm-hmm. You've been an amazing champion for female artists throughout your career and there's uh, the legacy that you created at the Whitworth Museum in uh, Manchester when you were there was is just phenomenal and yeah, legendary and yeah. you had some amazing artists in there and that what you have done, what you achieved there was just just wonderful. And there's an artist I'd like to talk about was when you had, because we're big fans on Talk Eyes, Marina Abramovich, when she took over mm. the Whitworth and what her process was and what she kind of asked and how that was achieved. Um, yeah, working with her was a huge learning experience for me. And, and again, she was somebody that I just read about in books because right. in the 80s and 90s, she, you know, she wasn't performing in the UK and by and large, UK culture kind of wasn't the epicentre of live art and performance. Although when I lived in Birmingham, my dear friend Mark Ball set up 
and then ran brilliantly the Fierce Festival, which meant in my kind of mid-20s, I did really start to understand performance art. So a bit like Derek Jarman, Marina was one of those kind of um, idols for me, absolute heroes. Mm. Um, And I moved to Manchester and was working at the Whitworth and the International Festival there had been set up by Alex Poots, um, who's become a really good friend of mine. And he came to see me and he said, we'd really like to do this project with Marina Abramovich. Do you know who she is? Um, And that might seem a funny thing to say now because, you know, Marina is so well-known worldwide now. Mm. Mm. And, and I mean, in some ways, she was really well-known from the 70s onwards, but in a very niche world. And, yeah. and actually, by the, by the kind of mid-2000s, her career had had kind of quite a lull because, as she says herself, she would make amazing performances through the 70s, 80s and 90s, but people didn't record them. In, right. in some ways, it was not seen to be proper because it was about the live moment. And she didn't have a gallery. And, you know, how do you sell live art? Yeah. <laughs> so so I guess her reach was limited then, wasn't it? Yeah. Beyond it was, whoever it was, was in the of, room at that experience. Yeah. Exactly. And, and she was very, very well known within the live art and performance world and within the kind of um, narrowness of the art world. But she wasn't known um, in the global way that she is now. So Alex says, do you know her? I'm going, oh, my God. Like, I spent months and months reading about this work and what, looking at photographs of it yeah. in earnest kind of art magazines. <laughs> and the idea that I could meet her was just so exciting. Um, wow. So Alex kind of, he, he set up, she came to visit. Um, she it was one of those very bizarre days because I was raising my kids at the same time as working at the Whitworth. And so my lovely curator, Mary Griffiths, went and showed Marina and Hans Ulrich Obrist, who was working with us on this project, around the Whitworth while I had to stand on a bloody touchline of a rugby match for my then probably 10-year-old son. I hate rugby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I came back and, uh, and I'd said, because I had the kids and was on my own, um, I'd said, come for dinner, but it have to be at home. And so I rushed back, cooked dinner, tried to get some kind of trendy music lined up to play and was just very, very nervous. Um, Marina arrives with Alex and Hans Ulrich. We all kind of talk and talk. And and I said, so what do you think about the gallery? What do you want to do? I said, we cannot talk about it yet. You have to have had a glass of wine first. (laughs) I I think that's a good good, good, uh, way forward, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm thinking, what on earth? Yeah, what on earth is she going to ask me? Um, and I remember very vividly, we sat down and we, we had Tumani Diabati's Monday variation, so lovely chorus music on mm. um, playing. And she said, okay, now is the right moment. And I um, said, so, so what do you want to do? And she said, it's what I want to undo. I said, okay. She said, you have um, 11 rooms in the in the gallery you know 11 gallery spaces she said, I would like to take all of the art out wow. I was like oh she said take the normal art out and instead put the live art and she said wow. this thing that stayed with me since um she said the thing is live art is always the thing that gets used for the opening and then it disappears Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. and she said, now we put the live art in the centre of the, the canon, the centre of the museum. And I could see Alex and Hans Ulrich looking really, really tense. And if you imagine, I mean, galleries are supposed to hang works of art. Yeah. And, you know, that's our purpose. And I didn't even know whether if we took all the art out that it would fit in the stores. Right, but right, I thought, right. this is Marina Abramovich asking me. And yeah. so I just kind of calmly nodded and said, okay, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then I said, I said uh, maybe have to go and ask some of the, the team about how we do it, but yes. Logistics, um, yeah. And then, then Marina looked really startled. And much later on, she said to me, 
you know that day when you said yes to the whole museum? She said, you weren't supposed to say that. She said, I said everything. You were supposed to say one room and we were supposed to meet in the middle. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And the resulting um, exhibition had 14 performance artists, no? So it was like a very committed... installation of performance work. but they're on like schedules like every 20 minutes they'll do a performance or every hour in that room no, there'd be a performance it was much more it was much tougher than that russell um, and that's the thing about what what i also learned from i learned so, so say yes was one of the things i learned from marina and the right. other was be demanding um because each day it, all 14 artists performed simultaneously for four hours <gasps> and the audience was asked to come um, at the beginning. They had to come in. They had to check in their phones and um, cameras. They had to put on a lab coat and enter into this experiment around live art. They had to spend the first hour with Marina being drilled into how you slow down. So she made people sit on a chair and look at their neighbour, look them straight in the eye for two minutes which is a very long time and and she made Mm -hmm. sip a glass of water a tiny glass of water but make it last for five minutes so she got people to go through this physical process to if you like let go of the outside world and calm down and then the audience had to stay for the four hours and we never locked the doors or kind of prevented anyone from leaving Mm. But the strength of the invitation was such that nobody left. I mean, if we if we'd build it before we started as a come on public, come for four hours to see a bunch of weird artists that you've never heard of who are doing strange physical things, mm. you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't have it wouldn't have flown in marketing terms. No. Yeah. But wow. what happened was that people got so intrigued about the proposition that we were sold out for 18 days, that the festival wow. was 18 days long. So every day... And there were four-hour slots you'd book for. They'd yeah. be in... Right, yeah. right, right. And that yeah, was part of was the amazing. International Festival, wasn't it? The Manchester Festival. It was, yeah. Yeah, amazing. She seems like the perfect artist for today's climate, like slowing down. We were all being forced to slow down, and she was forcing everyone at that point to slow down. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And actually, moving forward, there was a show you, I think you were the director of the Tate at this time, that was one of the best shows I think I've pretty much seen at the Tate, which was Anne Imhoff's uh, performance installation. And I I got invited by Sadie Coles and she took me and she luckily had a spare ticket and I went with her. And, you know, I will never forget the impact that had on me. And I'd seen her 2017 Venice installation, which was amazing. And at the time I was like blown away by it. But the one at the Tate was just so immersive in, in, and so kind of, I don't know, it just went on for hours. And it was one of the first times I've done yeah. that where you've actually spent that kind of long time. What was it like sort of doing that? Because it's a very like, kind of underground aesthetic and quite subversive in many ways to sort of bring that to a mainstream audience. Yeah. I mean, the hairs on the back of my neck just prickled as you mentioned that, Robert, um, because I think it, it, it was one of my standout um, yeah. encounters of recent years. And I think, I mean, working on anything like that is incredibly demanding. So uh, Catherine Woods and Akim, who lead and run the BMW Live program and had to take such extraordinary risks in order to bring that together. And and again, I think the best, much of the best artists, the art gets created when the artist is sort of pushing at the edge of their capabilities. Mm. And so Anne was directing the piece and working um, in a way that had, sort of significantly stretched what she had done before so the sort of elements were to do with it being in the tanks because those spaces anyway are just full of kind of eerie wonderfulness the concrete and I mean I'm I'm not sure whether this is really true but whenever I'm in them I always feel I can still smell the oil that would have been in (laughs) the tanks yeah but it's because they are still pretty much 
the the they are found industrial spaces. Yeah. And artists love them. And so Anne was directing both her performers and the audience through these rather uncanny spaces. And of course she created some structure. So sometimes the performers were above us, sometimes yeah. they were behind glass, sometimes they were moving through us. And they were making sound move through the spaces in really, really incredible ways. Mm -hmm. So there was a moment that just blew me away where one of the performers was carrying a speaker and um, and just walking quite rapidly through the crowds. And and so the the beautiful music was moving with their body. Yeah. And I think what was very special about it was this sense of as an audience we weren't separate from the performance because the way Anne was working and she was using um, her phone she was texting the performers she was making them move differently depending on where the audience were and so the person that came in to see it was making the piece with the performers and with the artist and that's really very unusual yeah I think it was such a interesting way to sort of create a psychological space as well because even though those tanks already dictate so much she actually transformed it completely with the climbing frames and and even the way she used that little sort of tank chamber or something um if you know what I mean there's a kind of like yeah. cave almost within that space yeah. and I don't know it was just and the way that no one could actually see what was inside because there were so many people in the audience that to see through that sl small kind of doorway was impossible because everyone was trying to crowd around and you you were desperate to know what was happening in every single part of the space and you can't you know that there, there might have been noises in the other rooms that you couldn't be part of but you were getting an echo of it it was just the most yeah. fascinating um, kind of an immersive is the only word which I don't always it kind of annoys me that word but but it really was it was like it was like being oh, I in love the, the word ocean. immersive doesn't um, I love an immersive experience no I know but I feel like people misuse that word now I think people say like oh it's going to be an immersive exhibition and when you get there you're like well it's not really it's just got a video on the you know on the wall right. or something. <laughs> Whereas yeah. I feel like this this was actually like, like 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 being floating in an ocean do you know what I mean like like yeah. with loads of other people or something it was so yeah. all all your senses were being kind of heightened and and um, manipulated in a way it was a fascinating exhibition. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I'm with you. It's not immersive if there's just a bit of moving image or some sound <laughs> surrounding you. Um, but you put your finger on it, Robert, when you say you could be in one of the tanks and you'd become aware that something was happening somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so it's like being in life as well as in art. Yes. That you, you were you seeing what you're seeing and you were missing out on something. And so there was sort of this curious sense of jeopardy in the experience of seeing it and of course and this is the great thing about all live art is that it was different each time mm. because it the performers were not following um an absolutely rigid script and mm. um, say Anne was responding to what was going on as it unfolded and so um what you and what you saw with Sadie would have been different to what I saw on the night that I went. Wow. Well, the, take, the takes were all incredible buildings. Do, do you ever feel there's any limitations to any of the spaces? Well, there's so many, actually. Oh. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're amazing, but um, every, almost every space um, has certain limitations. So at Liverpool, a uh, wonderful building on the docks, uh, and from one side you look out across the Mersey and out to sea. It's really mm. remarkable. But um, because it's an old warehouse, there are limited uh, height in many of the gallery spaces. Okay. So in recent times, we were looking at uh, showing some of Frank Bowling's paintings up there. Mm -hmm. Brilliant idea. You know, so much of his work is about that, um, uh, the Atlantic crossings between the UK, the Americas, the Caribbean, and so on. And then after a really excitable discussion for a, a couple of um, minutes with Helen, who's the director in Liverpool, we realised that the paintings were too big to get into the building. Oh, God. <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's a particular limitation there. Uh, environmental conditions. You know, there's also the, the technical issues that sit behind running museums are... Mm. You know, massive. We don't we don't speak of them that much publicly, but yeah. um, 
working in an old power station is completely fantastic um, in so many ways, but it's not a natural, a naturally um, environmentally stable situation. So there's a constant struggle with the building management system to just keep the environment um, so that it wouldn't be um, harmful to the art. Mm-hmm. And then there are also sort of different, I always think there are, um, people bring different assumptions to different buildings. So Tate Britain is, you know, the original Tate. It's, it's like the mothership. You know, when I grew up, it was the only Tate. And, yeah. um, and it, and it it comes out of late Victorian um, ambition, and so it is a grand building. You, know, you walk up the steps, you've got the incredible columns, you go into the the huge vaulting Devine spaces, but it speaks of um, it speaks of power. And mm. uh, we've found, of course, over the years that for, that's absolutely fine for people who are comfortable coming into galleries and have been taught how to do that either through their school or through their family experience. But it's, it's pretty intimidating if it's, if it's not part of your, your life experience. So you'll know that we've been over the last um, six months doing a project with Steve McQueen called year three, which photographed all the seven and eight year olds across London and brought mm-hmm. their school photographs into the Devine's gallery. And the thinking behind that with Steve was really about how could you make that grand building um, part of the life of a seven or eight-year-old, whoever they are in London? How could we make it not intimidating to come in? And um, that idea came out of um, Steve remembering being brought to Tate Britain when he was seven by his school and he says he still remembers running up the stairs, kind of looking up, which is what you see children do as you cross the threshold. You know, am I allowed in here? Mm. And he said what he found when he got there was were drawings and paintings. And he used to draw at home and he said he remembers thinking, oh, I'm allowed to do that. Oh, That's good. Yeah, and you think so we started to think about how important it was that we made sure that generations of children growing up in London now understand that they're allowed to be artists yeah. if that's what they want to be, or they're allowed to be whoever they want to be. Or they're allowed in these spaces. But also, if you see yourself yeah. up on the walls in an art gallery, it makes you feel like you belong anyway because you're seeing yourself represented, yeah. you're seeing yourself there. So, of course, yeah. you're welcome. If you're there on yeah. the wall, it must be your place. Yeah, totally. No doubt about it, because those children have become part of the national story yeah. of art. Yeah. 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 And it's even taken them onto the, you know, the billboards of train stations and, you know, on the on the streets and all kinds of things. Yeah. So they're kind of become part of the, the city. They're kind of seeing themselves represented even within the city as well, like outside mm. of the gallery, which mm. I also yeah. thought was a really nice part of that whole Steve McQueen show, you know, the way mm. that it yeah. extended beyond and then also went digital as well like it's a it's a really um kind of whole experience Mm. and it's interesting that idea of representation as well because i think it's a you know like that memory that you know mcqueen's talking about is almost kind of a conscious memory but also a subconscious thing that you then take away with you for the whole of your life you know it's like these are impressions that are lasting yeah Uh, something happened for steve in his childhood you know at school at home at that moment coming to Tate Britain that, that helped tell him that he was allowed to go and make films and go to art school and um, be an artist and a filmmaker in Hollywood or uh, in an art contest, wherever he mm. wanted, that he, he kind of subconsciously read that permission, he received heard permission, that permission yeah. from the world. Yeah. Yeah. And you're so right, Robert, about the the importance of that project being across London um, and across the digital universe as well. Um, I saw I, there were school photographs um, all the way along the length of Pimlico tube station, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. huge billboards, because that's the closest station to Tate Britain. Um, and one day I watched um, not, not just a couple of people, a large group of people let three trains go by because they were wanting to walk the length of the platform and oh, look at the wow. kids. 
I just think, so we've kind of interrupted people's rushing across London. You've and slowed them down. That is so yeah. important. Yeah, we're, we're on that as a theme, aren't we? Yeah, totally. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So talking about representation, is there anyone in the collection you think is underrepresented and are there any artists that you are longing to get into the collection yourself (laughs) um well there's been a lot of work over the last 10 years at least to rebalance the collection um in terms of gender um uh, francis morris and gallagher and colleagues who were at tate before i arrived have been you know doing really steadfast work to um to rebalance because um, they and we now, we inherited uh, a collection and a canon that was, you know, largely white men. And Mm. they're great artists, but alongside them, there were always great artists who were women um, who for historical and cultural reasons did not make their way into the collections. So, you know, sterling work has been done in that respect. Um, and uh, and that same kind of um, imbalance is even more acute for artists who are not white um, uh, and also for artists who've worked in unconventional media. And right. so in the last few years, we've done a lot of work to reflect the incredible diversity and, uh, and brilliance of uh, black British art from the 1980s and 90s. Mm-hmm. So I was really, really pleased that we were able to bring more work in by Sonia Boyce I last year. Sonia who's yeah. oh, I, I love her work. And and, she's representing um, England, uh, Great Britain at Venice next year. Yes, yeah, she is. And um, last year, we get a little fund that we're able to spend in the early morning of the Freeze Art Fair um, oh, yes. to make sure that some of that work comes into public collections and has a public benefit. And... Um, one of Sonia's pieces, um, that extraordinary installation of photographs where um, people um, are trying on Afro wigs, um, was brought into the collection. And that meant a huge amount to me because I'd seen the original performance um, when I was a student. Um, and it, it was done at Corner House in Manchester um, mm-hmm. in, I think, 1994. And, and and, and the really amazing thing was when I looked at the photographs, some of the technicians who had um, participated in the project, art handlers, uh, you know, the, um, the women and men who help install exhibitions, they still work in Manchester and they'd worked no. for me at the Whitworth. And it's like, oh, oh no. that's... So I was seeing them when they were kind of in their early 20s. It was really lovely. Um, but um, having like known Sonia's work since the early 90s uh, to bring a very big um, and important installation by her into the collection felt very, very important. Um, I think one of the areas that we're looking at a lot at the moment, Russell, is it's actually not the contemporary because, of course, you know, from my academic background, I've always been interested um, in the, um, the past as well as the present. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tate, Tate's responsible for 500 years of British art as well as the 20th and 21st century in international art. Um, so there's, some, there's more we need to do to represent um, the early women artists, so 18th century women artists. Mm-hmm. We need to do more in the 19th century. And 
that that will be slow because there's not a huge amount of work. But the the kind of excitement that uh, curators have when a work does become available um, and when we're able to correct some of that kind of historical imbalance is massive. Yeah. So last year, um, when it was a marking the hundred years of um, being able to vote uh, for some women, mm-hmm. um, we were able to bring in some of um, Emmeline Pankhurst's watercolors, and Whoa. that was just fantastic. Where had they and, been? How did you find them? Was the family well, looking after them all? They were. It was exactly that, Russell. Uh, they had a, a small body of her work still within the family, and understandably hadn't want to let that go but with it being the 100th anniversary of suffrage mm. and because it was Tate uh, they they came to us and we had a discussion and they decided they were willing to to let a small number of the watercolors come into the national collection and awesome. things moments like that are just so important are they political is they infused with that sort of energy or are they because of who she was are they just works that she made by no. her i mean she was uh, she was an artist before she was an activist and right. and um and worked as an artist her her whole life so they are um they're rather delicate and um beautifully drafted um largely domestic paintings wow. quite small and 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 uh, but they document her uh, her milieu, so um, yeah. the people that she knew and worked with, and um, um, and and also she did a lot of um, painting of the the other women that she saw in the world. Um, she did a number of tours um, around the country, uh, documenting women's labour. Um, so, wow. um, so there's she that that's one of the works captures that women at work. Wow, amazing! So, how how is how is life now for the Tate? I mean, what what is I mean for every gallery around the world now that's that's closing or on a pause? And what, how do you project this time now when it's unprecedented of what how to project into the future of where we're going to go? Well, I mean, I think it's it's really difficult, and because it still feels very uncertain how long we will be. Um, in isolation, um, mm-hmm. when we will be able to uh, step back into our public role. But, um, you know, on the one hand, we're, we're working with kind of vigour and optimism um, mm-hmm. to make the most of our digital content. Um, so this week, we've just launched um, tours of the Warhol show and the Beardsley yeah. show, um, led by the curators, which we were just about, we were able to film them at speed in the last couple of days before we closed down. Oh, great. And, um, which but they're all really, still hanging really up good. in there now, like a ghost town. They're all up. Yeah, like, they are. Yeah, well. Yeah, I, it's such I a strange of, thing just, about the Warhol show as well, because I feel like that, that must have been, and, and Beardsley actually, because um, yeah. even Mark Gatos, who we just interviewed, you know, did a documentary yeah. on BBC and there's been a lot of interest in his work at the moment. But I feel like with the Warhol one, that must be your like blockbuster, you know, show, which I'm sure you have international tourists coming to and all that kind of stuff. So it must be yeah. such a kind of tough thing for you guys to have put all that effort into putting such a high profile show on and get those loans. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a kick in the stomach, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, I've, I'm, I kind of dream about both of those shows, but especially mm. the Warhol, because um, uh, I mean, it had a week before closure. And this is marvellous room that's filled with uh, silver kind of pillow-sized balloons. And um, and they kind of bounce around and you walk through them. And I keep thinking of, <laughs> obviously, the balloons are not inflated while we're closed, but, but mm. I'm dreaming about these balloons kind of drifting around with nobody to nobody to (laughs) bump into um but uh gregor and finton who were the two curators that worked on that show so worked with our digital colleagues to to capture a tour of it just before we closed the bbc were able to get in and film it as you said uh, mark gattis did that wonderful documentary on beardsley so in some ways those things will reach a new and different audience in this time because uh, you know different people will watch things on the television um, and so many more people are looking for wonderful things to amuse themselves and to learn mm. from while they're at home 
And so we have to we have to kind of seize that and say that is a really, mm. really good thing. But you're hoping these shows will still be on for like when we get through this. Is there a, like a world where this is seen as a pause and then they can just we can just carry on from where we stopped? Yeah, I hope so. And yeah. and that's what I mean. Again, the teams behind the scenes have been planning multiple scenarios, uh, depending on how long we're closed, because of course we don't know that yet. Mm. Um, and um, I really hope that we that people will be able to come back and see those shows. But, but they might not want to straight away come into large crowded spaces. So yeah, thing, we've been thinking yeah. a lot. Yeah, because I think this will change all of our behavior for quite a while. And um, we've been thinking a lot and talking to each other about uh, what our purpose is after, um, after we're all able to sort of move beyond these restrictions. And, and I think part of our national role, if you like, is to help gently build people's confidence to um, come together again. Wow. And the good, thing about, the good thing about a gallery or a museum is actually you're not crowded into a tiny space. You don't have to be. You can choose where you stand. Mm. You can choose how close or far away from a work of art you want to be and you can take, take your own route. I mean, I often think about, I, I love some theatre, I have a kind of existential problem with uh, with the theatre space because I feel a bit uncomfortable with being told how long I have to sit still. And, right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the contract in theatre. You know, it lasts this long. You have to sit still and look in this direction. Mm-hmm. Whereas I've always loved the visual arts more because, you know, you can choose to walk through an exhibition backwards. You know, we don't... Yeah. We don't rigidly force people to see things in an order. And you can like some parts and really dislike others. And I never mind people who say, oh, I only like this kind of art and I don't like that. I say, well, you know, I'm glad you know your own mind. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, in a gallery, you're in, you're in charge of your own time, aren't you? Exactly. Once you're in there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think we're going to have a really, really important role to both um, give kind of creative inspiration to people but also to build their confidence again to be able to um be a part of the city again Society. or a part of the town yeah. that you're in yeah i didn't yeah. i do you know what? i've not really even considered the psychological ramifications of this whole experience for people that it's it's almost going to be slightly agoraphobic it's like mm. br- bringing on like enforced agoraphobia isn't it I and think it could be long term yeah. as well um you know, there's something that you did when you were at the Whitworth, which I really loved as a kind of idea, was that there was a fence um, that was in between the park and the gallery. Yes. And what was it? Was it you? It was, was, it, was it your decision, or at least it was when you were there that you removed that fence so that the park and the and the museum became connected? Yeah. Um, it, it, I campaigned um, to the city and the police to get them to take down the fence um, yeah. because the whole thing seemed to me really bizarre um, because originally the gallery the Whitworth and the park were created together and they yeah. were supposed to be a unified experience there was this brilliant stuff in the early um, committee papers for the Whitworth from the late 19th century um, that um, that talked about it being a gallery and a park for all social classes um, and it's a fantastic phrase that we we used again and again talking about the Whitworth's purpose was that the gallery was to be for the perpetual gratification of the people of Manchester. You think, well, you know, that's quite a good founding statement. <laughs> Amazing, um, yeah. But in the, in the kind of 90s and um, through the sort of that part of um, Manchester was hit quite hard in terms of post, um, post-industrial recession and the park had been rather unloved and forgotten and... For reasons that nobody could properly explain to me, this very high fence had been erected um, around the gallery, cutting it off from the park. And and as I said, you know, we stored the collection at the Whitworth, but there had been no evidence in the 125 years that the gallery was there that marauding hordes were going to come from the park and try and steal the collection. (laughs) (laughs) So... Um, but it, set, it gave such a bad message to people. Mm-hmm. It really did say, go away, we don't want you here mm-hmm. at this gallery. 
Um, so it took quite a lot of persuading, particularly um, with the police. But I knew that we wouldn't be able to develop the Whitworth and we wouldn't be able to be properly engaged with our public unless we took this fence down. And so it was the first step towards then applying to the Heritage Lottery Fund for funds to extend the gallery and create two new wings that embraced the park and made a beautiful art garden that's open to people. And and again, it goes back to that thing I was talking about around threshold anxiety, about what makes you frightened to step into mm, these yeah. spaces of culture that are supposed to be for everybody. Mm. We wanted the gallery to be so much part of the park that um, you felt you could kind of step in without even thinking about it. And after we'd completed the extension um, and one wing had a beautiful cafe upstairs that kind of sat in the trees that ran alongside the gallery. And I I sat one day, I was just having a cup of tea and I saw a little boy on a scooter um, and he kind of pushed himself really hard. So he'd escaped from his dad and he came sailing down the path that led to the parkside entrance And, of course, there were automatic doors. And as he sailed along on his scooter, the doors opened and he scooted all the way into the gallery. (laughs) And his dad was legging after him. (laughs) And I just thought, that's it. We've achieved it. We've absolutely achieved what we set out to do. so sweet. Is there any fears at the moment with the shows being up? I know that security is amazing, but with that Van Gogh being stole the other day and all these museums left empty because everyone's had to kind of do a massive Mary Celeste experience on all the spaces. Is there a sort of fear of uh, the protection of the art in there and is there security guards in there and everything in place? Yeah, and it's understandable that people would be concerned, but actually uh, security in all the national museums is, is really, really exemplary. And we have amazing teams of people who are there 24 hours round. Um, and, and of course, we're part of the wider effort in London as well. So at Tate Britain at the moment, the car parks behind the gallery, which are usually staff car parks, are being used um, for additional NHS um, staff who are oh, coming wow. in from outside London to help in the hospitals. Oh. And they need somewhere to be able to leave cars for um, 12-hour shifts. So we've given over our car parks to the NHS, um, which also just means there's more people around, um, which is a really good thing. Um, And I'm really proud we've been able to do that. And and we've done things... um, We have lots of PPE equipment at the galleries because we work with chemicals, cleaning paintings, and, you know, we have estates management. And so we have the kind of um, the standard PPE kit And really early on, uh, after closure, the staff got together and worked out what we could give over to the NHS and through the London Ambulance Service and hospitals in Liverpool. We kind of moved our stuff over to the people who need it. Oh, my God. You you are a good thing, Maria Bowshaw. (laughs) Tate is a good thing. (laughs) Aside from that, you're also a qualified yoga instructor. Is that true? (laughs) That is true. Um, (laughs) I... I um, I took my teaching quality. I never really intended to teach, although I have done a bit, um, because I wanted to understand my own and other people's yoga practice a bit more. And uh, I I learnt under an amazing teacher in Manchester called Andrea Everingham. And mm-hmm. I have to say, one of the um, joyous consequences of these strange times is that uh, my Manchester yoga studio, where I trained, has now moved all its classes online zoom classes so oh, yeah. in my kent house i'm able to do my manchester yoga class again it's amazing so going back to the idea of art heists because russell mentioned that van gogh that got stolen um we ask every guest two questions and the first one is if you could do an imaginary art heist so obviously not a real one um, <laughs> um or even just a touchstone <laughs> artwork for you if you don't want to steal something because i guess you are a museum director but um yes. but but if you want to if you have a touchstone artwork that really means something to you what what is that yeah, I think I definitely can't be um, on record as wanting to steal an artwork because that will cause <laughs> me to be struck off as a museum exactly. director. <laughs> um, um, but there is definitely a touchstone artwork. And, um, you know, I was lucky that I was able to work at the Whitworth with Cornelia Parker 
Connie, because mm. I know her, um, mm. uh, because she was again, she was one of my great heroes, and and her work, Cold Dark Matter, which is the exploded shed, shed and all yeah. its contents suspended um, in the air. That's in Tate's collection, which gives me great joy. Uh, but I saw but it's currently it in storage, isn't it? it? It is in storage at the moment. Yes, it's yes. um, quite a lot of storage. The, the boxes are really, re- the cases are really beautiful. It, you know, it's, it's, it's suspended by being hung on wires um, yeah. that hang from a kind of matrix above it. Um, and all the objects are attached to these wires. And so when, it's, uh, when it arrives, when it arrives from Tate to the Whitworth, it's these very, very long crates. And each wire is laid down horizontally in a foam surround so that the objects attached are all kind of cushioned in layers down these crates so you unpack it kind of strand by strand and gradually install it hanging from um, the frame above but I saw that work when she first made it uh, at Chisenhale in London and I still remember a friend of mine said I've heard this is like weird thing that's like an exploded kind of an exploded room and um, I think we should go and see it and so we went off on a Saturday and I didn't know who the artist was I didn't know what I was really going to see um, but when I walked in I, I sort of remember this kind of thrill that was it oh my god art art doesn't have to belong in a frame mm. and I still much later on and um, Connie told me that she'd gone to art school um and started in painting and realised she wasn't very good at painting, didn't like it very much. And so she transferred to sculpture in the second year. And then she said in a very, she's very self-deprecating. She said, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why I make the kind of sculptures that I do, because I missed the first year. I don't know how to make the normal stuff. Amazing. I mean, what is the, what is the uninstall for that? To install and uninstall, how long does that take? A few days, surely? Yes, yeah. I mean, at the Whitworth, it took us two days to install and slightly longer to to de- to deinstall because it takes longer to put things carefully back um, yeah. into the into the crates. And is there any plan for that to come back? I mean, how long do do you have ideas in your head when things go into storage? How long they stay in storage, or is it just like how does that work in like computing it all? Yeah, well, we have a very very good collections management database that keeps a track on where everything is and how long it's been in store and some things need to go and have people get often very upset about um the works in storage why are they not on show mm-hmm. but things like those beautiful drawings in the beardsley show if they were on show all the time they would fade and yeah. then they wouldn't be any good to us future generations would miss out so works on paper delicate watercolours have quite limited um, time spans that they're able to be out before they have to have... I always think of them going back to sleep in their box in the dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we keep an eye on that so that we don't um, do any damage to the artworks. Um, but then things like um, cold, dark matter are in great demand. So people might say, why is that not on show in Tate? Well, in 2014, the answer was because it's on show at the Whitworth in Manchester, because Tate lends um, oh, about 1,500 works a year go out across the nation and across the world. So Connie, Connie had a show in, um, um, in Sydney quite recently. So, um, you know, we lend to Sydney. Um, they have oh, works wow. by her in Australia. They might lend those to other parts of the world. Things are moving around all the time. So... Yeah. Sometimes they're not present um, in our Tate Britain rooms, but they'll be in Budapest or they'll be in Beijing. Um, and, and that's a really, I always think that's a really great thing because it's about sharing this artistic creativity globally. The world, yeah. Yeah, but the, the simple answer um, to when will cold dark matter be up again is um, we're looking at it because Alex Farkerson, the director at Tate Britain, and his team are going to be rehanging all of the British collection, you know, the whole 500 years through 2021. I mean, the timescales might shift a bit now because of mm-hmm. what we're living through, but 2021 into 22, 
rehang of the British collection. And so lots of things that haven't been on show for a while will come back um, out. Uh, cold dark matter is always a tricky one. People adore it, but it does take yeah. up a whole room and quite yes. a large room. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's huge, yeah. The other question we ask everyone is, what is your favourite colour and why? Oh, green. Mm-hmm. And, you like um, a lot of colour, don't you? You're known for like wearing bright <laughs> colours and fabrics. and Yeah, um, clashing patterns and all of that. Uh, green was an easy answer, and it's not, a, it's not related to my kind of visual arts career. It's, it's a big, my dad trained as a horticulturalist. He did his degree at um, the Horticulture College just near where I live now in Kent. Uh, which was part of the University of London then. And so I grew up with plants around me um, and I kind of understood how things grew and why you'd want to grow them without even thinking about it. Um, so spring, my favourite season, the, the shooting green of the natural world around me at the moment just lifts my heart. Um, yeah. But um, clashing colours also kind of really work for me. Um one of my great friends is the uh, fashion designer Duro Aluwu, uh, whose clothes I often wear. And um, I mean, he is uh, uh, Nigerian British and brings together those different traditions. So you get liberty print alongside African pattern. Um, mm. And uh, he once said to me, Maria, if in doubt, clash. <laughs> I have <laughs> always tried advice. to Good live advice. by that mantra. Didn't you you also have your wedding dress designed by Vivian Westwood? Didn't that end up in a gallery show somewhere? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I, yes, I got married in a very um, outrageous Vivian Westwood dress, uh, which was a sample. Um, I I so badly wanted this dress. Uh, It's beautiful pale blue jacquard, fake jacquard um, pattern with Mm an asymmetric kind of punk bustle on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was much I couldn't I, I absolutely could not afford it um, and I tried it on in the shop and it was a sample and uh, the lady went away to find out how much it would cost to have it made and I was with my friend Helen and we were just falling about with giggles in the change room going I'm never going to be able to afford this um, and this rather marvellous assistant came back and said um, I'm terribly sorry but um, we have none of this fabric left oh well you know I was never gonna be able to buy it anyway um and she and then she sort of had this fake solemn face and said the thing is now that the fabric is gone we are able to sell the sample um and it proved to be a very very extreme reduction so suddenly the wedding dress became within reach but um the truth was that it was too—it was too small for me. I could not breathe in this bloody dress, um, <laughs> and I just thought, "Well, I don't—I don't care. I'm going to lose a stone." Yes, of course. So right. I did, <laughs> because I was determined I was going to buy this dress. And wow. as with so much of Vivian's work, the uh, the tailoring and uh, the structure of it is amazing, mm. and um, and she'd taken inspiration from 18th century dresses, and. At that time, I was at Manchester Art Gallery and um, there, there's a gallery of costume as part of the, um, the set of museums there. So uh, Miles, the um, curator of costume, said, well, look, I've got this 18th century dress that Vivian has used for inspiration. So can you, um, can you lend us your dress so that we can make a show of the two things together? So that's what he did. Amazing. I love that. So the other question we ask everyone, which we did in the minute because it's a Brucey bonus, is Rob. Um, if you could encourage or have you rediscovered a hidden talent in lockdown? <laughs> um, well, I would encourage uh, vegetable growing. Mm. And oh, wow. uh, it's not so much that I've discovered a hidden talent. I've always grown vegetables. But... Uh, during normal life, I don't have time to raise things from seed. And, um, you know, you need warmth to get chilies and tomatoes and um, aubergines going early enough in the season that they'll then grow properly. But because I'm at home and I've got the heating on and in the kitchen, I've got tomato and chili and aubergine seeds, little plants all around me at the moment. 
Um, so even if the lockdown goes on for a really long time, we're not going to be hungry in this part of the world. In fact, mm. I think I'll have enough to have a little vegetable box scheme with my neighbours. Um, mm. So I would say to people, scatter some tomato seeds and see what happens. Wonderful. Oh, we love well, you, Maria. Thank you so much. I love you too. You ask very nice questions. Thank you. Oh, good. Oh. No, of course. For everything we're talking about in today's episode, please look at our Instagram at Toolcart. And you're on Instagram as well, aren't you, Maria? I am, yes. What is your handle? Um, do you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I can't remember my handle. <laughs> We'll, we're going to link to you anyway. I think it's I'm Maria sure Balshaw. it's Maria Balshaw. I, <laughs> yeah. I am, I really and the tapes, all the tapes, obviously. Basic name. Yeah, you're yeah, across t- all the tapes. Tate is definitely on Instagram. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Maria. Thank it's you so great. much, Maria. And we'll be back very thank soon. Thank you. Thanks Cheers. for listening. Bye-bye. Yeah, Bye-bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at TalkArt, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.